The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. So we're looking at Acts 16. That's what we're doing, right? So turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Uh, We're going to go through the whole chapter, so you need to buckle up, get ready. Uh, It's a long chapter, but it should be filled with some great things that we can learn from it. And uh, we're going to start in, in the first verse and uh, kind of look at um, what's happening here in the church and what God is doing through Paul and uh, what Luke has to say through us, uh, to us uh, through the Word of God in the book of Acts. So let's look at verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered them for observance, uh, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Verse 6, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mesia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mesia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God has, had called us to preach the gospel to them. Let's pray together. Dear God, we're uh, so glad and excited to be in your presence this morning with your word, uh, with your people. And um, Lord, I pray that as uh, we read and as we study, that you will open our hearts and our minds to understand uh, things that we may have heard before, things that maybe we are, that are new to us. And most importantly, we, we pray that we'll see Jesus in, in this text and see the transforming power of the gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. So if we start out in the first verse here, uh, if you look closely at the first six or seven words, you actually see an interesting thing happening. Uh, Paul is, uh, has come uh, to his second missionary journey, and he goes to these different cities. Paul came to Derby and to Lystra. And it's kind of interesting, if you look uh, a little bit into that passage, you actually see that these are cities that Paul had been to before. And if you remember maybe a little while back, if you actually listen to what Pastor Gary says, you'd remember that in in Acts chapter 14, uh, that Paul was in Lystra. And it's kind of interesting what happened there. I don't know if you remember, uh, but what happened back then was Paul uh, was stoned. And because he was sharing the gospel, they picked up rocks, just like he used to observe back when he was a Pharisee. They picked up rocks and threw rocks at him to the point where they thought he had died. And they basically dragged him outside the city of Lystra and they said, uh, here you go, you know, he's basically dead. But not only did they do that, Paul gets up and what does he do? (laughs) He goes back into the city. Paul's crazy. And he he goes back into the city that just stoned him. I don't know if he's just like in your face, maybe that's what I would have done too. (laughs) Like, you thought you killed me, but you didn't. You can't kill me, so try it again. Uh, so he comes back here, and then now we see for the third time he's back in the city. Again, we would either say that Paul's absolutely nuts, or he's supremely controlled by the power of the Spirit. And I believe it's the second. 
although he was a little bit crazy too. Um, so we see Luke picking up here in this passage, and he's, he's talking a, about Paul, and uh, he points out that, remember last week we saw that Paul and Barnabas split ways. They had an argument, and they had a disagreement, and they chose to, to just separate. And so Paul's at this point right now in this separation where there's a few guys that he has with him, but he needs some other guys to do the job, to share the gospel, to, to mentor. And so he picks what I would call a, a first-round pick. You know, we're getting ready for the NFL draft coming up. He picks a first-rounder in Timothy. Now, I'm so glad that uh, Pastor Gary doesn't pick his people like Paul did uh, Timothy. If you look in the passage, it's kind of scary. But, uh, but he picks Timothy, and he's well-known, well-spoken of in the Scriptures, well uh, well-liked uh, among the people that he worked with, and so Timothy's on board. But then there's another person that gets picked up that's kind of interesting. If you look at verses 9 and 10, it says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. Notice the key word, us. And then when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought, we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You see, Luke, the writer of Acts, goes from speaking and writing in a way that refers to them and they, and he starts to say, we and us. So it's a very important key thing that really isn't written much about. Obviously, it's Luke. He doesn't want to draw attention. Hey, I joined the team, everybody. I'm good, too. You know, he just says us, and he just, there's a transition where Luke just jumps on board, and he's actually starting to travel with them now. So uh, Paul picks up. Timothy, he picks up Luke. He already had Silas with him. And then uh, you, it's kind of interesting what happens here. Uh, they go on to this, this journey, and they start in Derby, you see, and then uh, Lystra or Lystra. And then they go up to Iconium and Antioch. And then they get to this point where they're thinking, okay, the rest of the cities I'm supposed to share the gospel in. Obviously, I come to a city, Paul's chomping at the bit, ready to share the gospel. So he wants to stop at every city. Everybody needs to hear the gospel, right? But then he says the Spirit didn't allow him to go. And they, you see in this long arrow right there, he goes through all these cities and up to Troas. So they go up this way thinking they're going to go this direction. And then the Spirit's like, nope, cut over this way. So the Spirit takes them on a 400-mile journey by foot. The equivalent of what we might say uh, walking from Temple to Amarillo. And that's the journey they end up taking. And the Spirit leads them that way. I don't know about you, but it's like, really? I can't stop here or here or here? No, it's okay, Paul. Keep going. So it's kind of an interesting journey that they go on. Two things just in the introduction to maybe warn us about is sometimes what we think God would want us to do isn't the right route to take. You know, it's, a, it's a very big danger to replace the Spirit with logic. Oh, this seems logical, so I guess God wants me to do it. Not, not really, not usually. Just study the Scriptures and you see what happens to Paul and the disciples. They don't follow logic, they follow the Spirit. And the second thing is sometimes the open doors that we talk about in Christian circles aren't meant for us. We look at open doors, and even early on in my ministry, I would pray for leading and guidance. Should I go here? Should I go here? And I'd ask for an open door, and I equated the open door with something that was smooth and something that was an easy thing to do. 
And once again, if you look at Scripture, look at Paul's life, the open doors, guess what? Sometimes they bring suffering. The doors that you're meant to go through bring pain and agony. Scripture doesn't teach that open doors... Now, yes, there are times where, man, I love my life. I love my family. i got four kids. We're so excited. We love being here. But it doesn't always mean that life's going to be easy. The open doors often are ones we need to head straight into knowing there'll be pain. And knowing that there might be hurt. And this is what Paul does. He trusts the Spirit's guidance. So, so far in Acts, we've, we've kind of been at a 30,000 foot view, like up in an airplane, looking down on the United States, and we, we see all these different things, and we don't really see details, we just see stuff. And so far in the books of Acts, that's where we've been with Luke. He's been talking about the church that started, 3,000 people coming to Christ at Pentecost, 5,000 people coming at, to Christ at Solomon's portico, all these different people coming to Christ, and, and the whole city's being transformed by the gospel, so it's kind of... It's almost like warp speed, and even in the beginning of this chapter, it's like, here, this city, that city, that city, and we're kind of like, whoa, whoa, slow down, slow down, I can't keep up. And then all of a sudden, he goes from warp speed and, and kind of brings us down where we're going to look today. And as I thought about warp speed, I thought about a trip our family just took out to California. We had a conference out there, and of course, we took the family, so we'd go to Disneyland and uh, hang out together and, and ride some rides. I love roller coasters. I guess I'm just a good junior high pastor. That's just what I got to do. But uh, I love rides. And uh, so we go on this ride in Disneyland called Star Tours. And the, the girls went with us. And Noah, we got four kids. Owen, he wasn't big enough to do that. But we go and we ride. But then Noah, we go back to Disneyland and he's begging me to go back on this ride. And I'm not like a Star Wars nerd. Some of you out there love Star Wars. You could quote everything in the Star Wars. And I think I'm going to have to start liking it because he liked this so much. But if you go in this ride, you know, Disney, they're pretty creative, right? That's kind of an understatement, right? Uh, Disney's pretty creative. And what they do, instead of just waiting in these lines where you have these metal gates like cattle, uh, they actually take you into the ride and help you start the experience early. And so you're in the experience before you get on the ride. And you're looking here at R2-D2 and C-3PO. There's the only two I think I know. Why there's Chewbacca too. Uh, so you got, you got this whole experience and, and you see this scene over here from one movie, this scene from another movie, and it's just blowing your mind. But it's really like I have no idea what's going on here. And, and so warp speed's happening. You're seeing this, this, and, and then warp speed from my son. He's four, right? So warp speed with the questions. Daddy, what about this? What about that? What about, what's this? Who's that? What, and I'm trying to make stuff up like I know what I'm talking about, right? I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, Luke, I think, is Skywalker? Yeah, that's it. And, uh, you know, and the guy behind me, I'm trying to be quiet so the guy behind me that knows every word of every movie doesn't, you know, lean over and correct me in front of my son and make me look like a loser. Uh, so it's kind of funny, you know, is what's happening. But what's, what's great about the ride is you get to that and then you finally pick up the glasses, 3D glasses. It's still like 30 minutes before you get on the ride, but Noah's like, Dad, put on the glasses, okay? So I pop the glasses on, and I'm ready to check this ride out. <clears throat> so we sit down, we buckle up, we're in the ride, the simulator, and then, oh, then we experience Star Wars. We're ducking, diving, you know, lasers are coming out of our face, you know, we feel heat on the back of our neck, and we're actually in the experience. And that's kind of how I picture this passage 
uh, Luke has, has kept us up here in an overview, and now he's kind of, here you are, 3D, right in the moment, and you actually get to feel, you get to hear, you get to smell, you get to touch what's happening. And so that's where we're at today, where we're actually going to go from what you would call a macro view, a big view, to a micro view, to actually being in the moment. And we're going to look at three different people that were touched by this moment, three vastly different people who were equally affected uh, by the power of the gospel. So let's take a look at this and uh, see the first person that was affected. Uh, so we see in, in verses 11, if you jump down there to verse 11, it says, Setting sail for Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. So you see on this map, you actually see where they went. They went uh, right here from Troas, took a boat across to Neapolis, and then they settled down in Philippi. And you see they encounter somebody here, the first person we're going to look at uh, in the next verse, verse 13. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So the first person we're going to look at today we'll call the gospel for the religious. The gospel for the religious. This is Lydia. Okay, so Paul goes to this area. Silas goes, Timothy. They go to this area and they hear about this woman. They hear about these women who have been meeting and praying together and reading the scriptures. So it's important for us to see that Paul and Silas, they didn't just set up camp and say, come hear us. We're popular. This is our second time through. You should know us by now, right? They actually went into culture. They went to where people were in need and they met them in their need where they were. And so they go out and they just sit down and talk. There was no synagogue back then in that city. There was no place of worship. And so they weren't standing up here like I am. They just sat down and started having a conversation uh, with these women. And so you look at this passage and you see a little bit about Lydia. She was what we would consider today a fashion icon. She was a seller of purple, which was the most expensive uh, color you could sell. She, was, she w- had, had like a home in Thyatira. She had a place in Philippi. She was uh, between these two cities. Like today, we would compare these cities to somewhere like New York City and, and London. Places of, of fashion, places of economy, places of culture, development. And so this is where she was from. And so Lydia uh, was from here, massive port city of Thyatira. But it says she was a worshiper of God. And if you take that translation, it basically means she studied the Hebrew Scriptures. She had the Hebrew Scriptures in her possession, and she and these women would get together and do simple Bible studies. And they would just study the Scriptures. And so it's important for us to see that she was a seeker. She was a religious person. But she recognized that the Roman paganism that existed back then in her city wasn't where it was at. The worship of multiple gods wasn't the way to go. And she recognized something was different about the Scriptures. Something was different about one true God. And so what happens is an interesting thing that takes place that Paul comes to see her and he kind of connects the dots. Anybody do connect the dots when you were little? Anybody? You into connect the dots? Some of you are like, I still do it. 
Well, that's cool. That's awesome. Uh, but you think about connect the dots, and you got the numbers, right? And it kind of would be horrible <laughs> if you didn't know how to count. It would be really frustrating uh, trying to connect the dots. And like, I imagine like taking my, my little 16-month-old boy. All right, Owen, sit down. Here's the paper. It's got lots of numbers on it. Now connect the dots. And he takes the crayon, and immediately puts it in his mouth and starts to eat it, right? That's, the, yeah, that's what they do. Uh, so... That would be frustrating for him, even if he knew numbers. Okay, count. I don't know how. So this is what Lydia was experiencing. She was seeing all these dots in Scripture, these Old Testament stories and situations, but she didn't see Jesus there. And so what Paul does is he comes along and basically performs connect the dots for her and takes the dots that were confusing or or really not clear to her and takes her and says, here, Here's where Jesus is here. Here's where Jesus is here. Here's the suffering servant. Here's the sacrificial lamb. Here's the serpent on the post. Here's all these things. And there's Jesus, 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 Jesus. And it's kind of interesting that he did this because uh, Jesus did the same thing. As I was reading through my uh, Bible plan a few nights ago, there's no accidents with God when you're studying Scripture. And so when I was reading through that, I came to a passage of Scripture uh, that, that Jesus had just died and he rose from the dead, and he goes to these men uh, on the road to Emmaus. And it's found in Luke chapter 24, and in verse 27, he appears to these guys, and I love how Jesus does this stuff. He walks up alongside them and, and kind of cloaks himself, you know, maybe Star Wars action where he's like, I'm not here, or you don't really recognize me. And he's walking with these guys, they're talking to him, they're on the road, and he starts to tell them all about himself, but they don't know it's him. And so in that passage in verse 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then in that passage, he goes on and meets the disciples in verse 44 and 45. And he says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. It's interesting that Paul had a good example of this. Jesus did the same thing to people. He pointed them back to the Scriptures, back to the Hebrew Scriptures, and said, here I am, here I am, here I am. You can see me here, 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 and connected the dots. And Paul's doing the same thing with Lydia. So you got Paul and Silas, and Paul begins to speak to Lydia, and her eyes were opened. You know, Lydia, she needed the Gospel, Because religion, seeking God through religion, is an outside-in approach to the gospel. It's, I clean myself up, I do these rules, follow this pattern, say these things, recite this, memorize that, and then God accepts me inside. When Christianity and the gospel is inside out, I don't come to God all cleaned up. I don't come to Him rid of all these things that I'm addicted to or struggling with. No, I come to Him in my dirtiness and in my sin, and I come to Him and He transforms me from the inside out. And so Lydia experiences this uh, transformation. And so Paul starts to talk to her and gets into that with her, and uh, you know, he begins to speak with her, and her, her heart was open. You see later in those scriptures her If you look at verse 14, one who heard was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. 
The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Verse 15. And after she was baptized, her whole household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So you have Lydia here begging Paul and the rest of them to stay. And their whole household was, came to Christ. Not just the whole household isn't just referring to her kids and her husband. It refers to the people that worked in her house. The servants and everybody came. And if you jump ahead to verse 40, you actually see that Paul stopped back by because you had an instant small group here. Really an instant church. And they all started worshiping God together. They all started seeking God in the scriptures and seeing him. And it's an amazing thing that took place. And so, you know, you see this happening uh, to Lydia. And you see that God opened her heart. So we've observed the gospel for the, the religious. But let's look next at the gospel for the oppressed, the slave girl. Look at this passage in verse uh, 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And so you have this girl... First of all, this girl was the opposite of Lydia. Lydia was religious. She was a spiritual seeker. She was seeking after God. This girl was oppressed. She was demon-possessed. She had no time to seek God. She had no thoughts toward God. She had no ability to seek God at the moment because she was possessed by this demon. And so on the surface, this story sounds kind of weird and, and almost humorous. You picture this girl like, following these guys around. Jesus is legit. The gospel's awesome. Jesus is the only way. And she's doing this not for like 10 minutes, for days. This girl is following after them. It's kind of like my kids. You know, you've been on vacation with my kids. I love my kids to death. But you spend 24-7 with them for seven straight days, it gets a little crazy. They're pulling on your arm. They're talking four different directions. I don't even know what conversation I'm listening to. And it's just boom, boom, boom. And this is what I imagine this girl was doing to Paul. And he's like, all right, that's enough. And if you look in the scripture, it's really funny. He says he became greatly annoyed. And when I was talking to my wife about this, this passage, I was like talking about this situation. She's like, I wonder why it took him a few days. You know, <laughs> like uh, I'd be annoyed after 10 minutes. Paul, I guess, you know, being more spiritual than us, was more patient and, and, and bearing with her. And then finally he's like, all right, that's it. I can't deal with this anymore. Uh, all right, demon, you're gone. And so Paul turns to her, casts the demon out, and, uh, you know, he was pretty annoyed. So it's kind of interesting, though, why we might think that uh, she's a believer. I was preparing for this, this lesson today. I heard a sermon from Matt Chandler, and he kind of gets into the description of this and helps us understand why we would think that this girl is a believer even though it doesn't say her eyes were open or her heart was open. And this is a passage that he went to, Matthew chapter 12. Jesus had just cast out, a, cast out a demon. And he said, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. 
so also will it be with this evil generation. So Jesus basically explains this by saying, if a demon is cast out of somebody, the demon goes away, but he's like, I'm not defeated. I'm going to go get seven buddies and come back and, you know, make it even worse, right? And so if this woman wasn't redeemed, if, if she didn't come to Christ, then she would have had seven more demons plus one inside of her helping these guys make even more money off of her and helping her be oppressed even more and enslaved even more. But because it says the men basically lost hope in their ability to make money, we can see possibly that this woman came to Christ because there was no opportunity for any more oppression or demon possession. So we see this take place and you know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Keller gets into this a little bit. He, he compares uh, the two women and he says, Lydia re- was reached through reason and conversation. The slave girl was reached by a powerful encounter. Lydia was a victim of religion. The slave girl was a victim of social injustice and demonic possession. Lydia was redeemed from herself and religious practices. The slave girl was redeemed spiritually, socially, psychologically, physically, and economically. You know, so we see in this story that you know, she was in a tough spot. She was possessed. She was also oppressed. She was, abu- she was abused by society around her. She was experiencing injustice from people that were over her, making money off of her, profiting from her. And so we see that we are all called as a church to these places of distress. We are commanded by God to seek justice for the oppressed, Freedom for the enslaved, families for the orphans, and help for the widows. Keller also goes on to say, when the cross comes into the center of your life, you never look at the poor the same. You never look at the oppressed the same. You never look at the hurting the same because you experience that same hurt. You experience that same pain. Maybe not on the level that they have, but you still can identify with somebody who was lost and was found. Someone who needed Jesus to transform them. And this is what we see in this slave girl's life. You know, a church that does not engage social justice in its community is a church that does not understand the gospel completely. You know, for some of us, Jesus found us in these darker places. Maybe we weren't religious and grow up in the church and and memorize in Scripture. Maybe we weren't there. Maybe we were in the oppression and the poor, and the hurting, and the pain, and and some things that maybe we had done to get us there, or maybe things that were done to us like this slave girl. But God reached you where you were at. And so it's important for us to see the gospel changes everything. Even Jesus says in Mark 2.17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So we've observed the gospel work among the religious and the oppressed. Now let's look finally at how the gospel works itself out among the disinterested. The disinterested. So the, we come to the story of the jailer. If you follow here in verse 22, Paul's arrested, Silas are arrested, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So you have this situation now with the jailer. 
You know, Paul and Silas were arrested, stripped, beaten. You don't remember that open door? <laughs> Thanks, God, for that beautiful open door you gave me. They're beaten, they're stripped, they're thrown into jail. And we need to understand a little bit more about this jail. We need to understand a little bit more about the scene to really taste, see, feel, smell what was going on. Because back then, those Roman jails um, were, were pretty interesting places, and especially if you were put in the inner jail. Uh, here's a picture of what uh, many scholars believe is the actual jail in Philippi where Paul and Silas were placed. And you can see the picture is taken from above because this jail, the innermost jail, were the ones that were below the ground. And so you have these other jail cells above all around. If you picture with me these cells and even the city and all that's going on, and you picture uh, no plumbing, and you picture human waste, animal waste, whatever you want to call it, all these different things coming down from the jail cell into the innermost jail. That was reserved for the real scumbags. And that's where Paul and Silas were. So they're placed in this innermost jail. Not only that, but they're actually sitting in these stocks. And the stocks weren't like when you go visit like a historical city, a beautiful city, you know, like Philadelphia uh, or Boston or something like that. And you go and you picture this and you get, you go see, you, you take your family to see the history there. And they have these stocks that are, you just put your head in, they close it on you. No big deal, at least for a few moments. I guess if you were locked in there for a while, it might be. But these stocks were actually meant to bend your arms and your legs to ways they weren't supposed to go. To contort your body to a place that hurts and then lock you there. And so this is where Paul and Silas sit. This is where they are. They're sitting among human waste, awful stench, just gross place, and then they're stuck in a painful situation. And what are they doing? I don't know about you, what I'd be doing. I'd be crying, calling for mommy. Maybe if I could, curl up in a ball, suck my thumb, something. Because I'd be in distress. But what are they doing? They're singing and praising God at midnight. And I love this part of the passage. The prisoners were listening to them. The prisoners were listening to them. So they're praising God. The jailer, man, this dude was pretty tough. Historically, those jailers were highly decorated soldiers, even heroes of the Roman army. And they would be gifted this ability to oversee these jails and these cities as a retirement. So this guy was a tough dude. He wasn't a guy who was looking out for the best interest of his inmates because someone was watching. He took Paul and Silas, instead of keeping them safely, he threw them into the deepest, darkest part of his jail. This guy had probably seen things and done things that were unimaginable. This guy wasn't interested in God. He wasn't seeking after Him. He wasn't in that situation. He's a, he's a tough guy. So some of you may be in that situation. Maybe you came from that situation angry, violent, bitter, jealous, hateful. And maybe God has transformed you or maybe today He needs to transform you from that situation. You know, in this situation, though, you, Keller goes on to say, you don't tell the gospel to someone who doesn't care. You show the gospel to someone who doesn't care. You can say all the words you want and have everything memorized in the Romans road or whatever it is that you study to present the gospel. And you can say all the nice things. Someone who's disinterested isn't really going to listen to you. 
He needed a demonstration of God's love, and that's what he got. If you're taking notes, you can write these things down. The jailer saw two things in Paul and Silas. Number one, they had a joy that was rooted in something too deep to take away. And number two, they repaid evil with good. You see in this passage, about midnight when they were, they were uh, praying and singing, verse 26, suddenly there was an earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Don't harm yourself, we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He saw a demonstration of the gospel. The ultimate demonstration of the gospel, obviously, is Jesus Christ on the cross, saying, Forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. We can be that demonstration to others. We can be that demonstration of repaying evil for good and sharing the gospel to those who aren't really interested. We see that the church can teach this in a different language to the world. Suffering takes on a whole new meaning for a believer. When we see and when the world sees believers going through suffering and watches small groups and fellow Christians come alongside and encourage and provide meals and help, The world sees, and even a disinterested world sees love that is unexplainable. And they see it lived out. And so we are called to that as well. And recently I heard of an example of this here in this body. A few weeks ago in our small group, we're taking prayer requests. And this turns into a praise time. And and I hear uh, one of our girls talk about how a family in our church recently tragically lost a loved one. And they're going through pain and hurt and and agony. And Pastor Gary is almost on the other side of the world in Africa leading a conference. And he hears of this tragedy. And instead of just passing off the care to one of us, he actually gets with Wi-Fi and makes two phone calls to this family from Africa to check in on them. A physical demonstration of God's love. And there are members of that family that I'm sure are disinterested in the gospel and probably pretty hurt by what happened to this member of this family. But you know what they saw? A physical demonstration of God's love in a time of hurt and pain. And it was a clear gospel presentation. So in summary, we've seen Lydia, who was met through words. The gospel shared to her. The dots connected to her for her. And then we see the slave girl who experienced the power. She needed the power of God to come in 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 an amazing way to blow her up and free her from this demon and this oppression. And then we've seen this jailer who really was disinterested, not even thinking about God, but God came to him through a physical act of love and a physical act of really uh, saving his own life. And so in conclusion, we can see three things. That the gospel is for everyone. Dave Tate shared probably about a month or so ago that the gospel doesn't have its center in one place. All other religions have their center in one geographic place. But the gospel's different. It could start in Bethlehem, but then it can move over here, and it can move to the U.S., it can move to China, it can move to Africa, it can move everywhere. It's for all types of people, for all races, for all people. The gospel's for everyone. 
Secondly, the gospel is the unifying factor. Paul used to be a Pharisee. Paul used to persecute Christians. He used to pray the prayer that was found in Luke 18 that said, I'm glad I'm not better. I mean, I'm glad I'm not like the adulterer. I'm glad I'm not like the murderer. I'm glad I'm not like the rapist. I'm not glad I'm not like them. I'm good, right? Paul used to pray that prayer. But now he goes to these people. He shares the gospel. He shares God's love. He risks his life to unify people together. And then the third one is the gospel can't be canned. You can't come up with some formula, some ABC, some little magic tricks, some statements that you can make, and all of a sudden, boom, people come to Christ. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the power of God that He uses you in different ways, in different situations to come to Christ. And so for you that are here that don't know Jesus, God may be calling you today. You may have observed people in pain and you've seen them be supported by people that know Jesus. You may have heard words and you need to hear more words of the love of Jesus to convince you that your religion is worthless. You may need to be free from oppression. God can do all those. The Holy Spirit has the power to do all those. Jesus' blood has the power to cleanse you. Let's pray. God Almighty, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the challenge from Acts chapter 16. We thank You that Your Holy Spirit has the power to cleanse us from all our sin because of Your Son's death on the cross his burial, and his resurrection, that we have hope, we have peace, we have a future. I pray for those that are in here that don't know you, that they will trust you today, that they will put their faith and hope in you, knowing that you are the only way, the truth, and the life. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, you are dismissed.